0: Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time of worship in the Word. And Lord, when we think about what we've sang, we belong to you. Lord, certainly, if we can hear your voice, if we're able to distinguish what you're saying and then do what you ask, the Bible makes it abundantly clear that we are your sheep and you are our shepherd. Lord, we know that in the world there are sheep and there are goats. And Lord, we pray that for that person who doesn't belong, who doesn't hear your voice, whose lives are lives of emptiness and brokenness and darkness, Lord, we pray that the penetrating light and truth of the gospel would be heard and understood received and enjoyed in jesus name amen john chapter 10 beginning in verse 22 it says now it was the feast of dedication in jerusalem and it was winter and jesus walked in the temple in solomon's porch Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe, because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of these works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, You are God's? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the son of God. If I do not do the works of my father, do not believe me. But if I do, and though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the father is in me and I in him. Therefore, they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand and he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at first. And there he stayed. Then many came to him and said, John performed no sign, but all the things that John spoke about this man were true and many believed in him there. Chapter 10 began with an illustration in verses 1 through 6 of shepherds and sheep, of the relationship between shepherds and sheep. And then the chapter continues with an explanation about Jesus being the door in verses 7 through 10 into the sheepfold and that Jesus is the door of salvation in verse 9. The chapter unfolds with contrasts Between good and bad shepherds, true and false shepherds, in verses 11 through 21. So the chapter moves from illustration to explanation to application in verses 22 through 42. Jesus is the good shepherd, he gives his life for the sheep. Now you'll remember in the Old Testament, the sheep gave their life for the shepherd. They died so that the shepherd could live. But now Jesus tells them that the shepherd will die so that they can live. Jesus calls the people of the world out of their false and dark religions into the world of the one true flock of Christ and the church. And so the revelation of Jesus led to a Reaction by the Jews. Some suggested that Jesus was either psychotic or satanic. Others couldn't ignore the spectacular miracles including the miracle of the man born blind in verse 21. Between verse 21 and verse 22 there is a hiatus, a pause. Some two months, two to three months have already gone by. And the religious leaders are still arguing with Jesus. For a brief moment, Jesus is going to return to the imagery of the sheep and the shepherd. Jesus will speak of four qualities that help the shepherd distinguish the goats from the sheep. And once again, we're left with what the New Testament says. There's two kinds of people in the world. Italian people and people who wish they weren't. No, that's not the two kinds of people. There are two kinds of people in the world. Those who know the Lord and those who don't know the Lord. Those who are sheep and those who are goats. And the four qualities aren't simply connected to right doctrine, although that is important. The the Christian knows, loves, and follows the shepherd. Many months ago, my friend Mark Balmer, who is a pastor in Florida, came and shared with us. And he talked about how he's reluctant to use the term Christian because the word Christian itself has become eviscerated, emptied of its most basic meaning. And then he talked about a Christian being one who follows Jesus right now. Now, It's not a person who simply believes in Jesus and does whatever they want, but rather a Christian must mean someone who knows, loves, follows, and obeys the Lord. Genuine believers are, number one, sensitive to the voice of Jesus. Number two, submissive or obedient to Christ's leadership. Number three, confident or assured. Of their eternal destiny. And number four. Secure in the shepherd's care. Carried in the shepherd's bosom. All of that. To ask this one question of you. Is that a description of you? Does that describe your heart? And your circumstances? Do you hear the voice of Jesus? Are you obeying his leadership? Are you walking in assurance of friendship and fellowship and love with the shepherd? There's so much to talk about, but let's start. Look at the setting in verse 22. Now it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem. And it was winter. The setting is important. Because we're told the encounter takes place in winter. During the Feast of Dedication. And the Feast of Dedication always was on the 25th of Heslef. And that always on the Jewish calendar falls between November and December. The Feast of Dedication was celebrated The cleansing of the temple and the Jewish independence from the Syrian Greeks. For those of you who have been following along on Wednesdays, we're studying in the 8th chapter of Daniel, where we see prophetically a man named Antiochus Epiphanes, who ruled from 175 to 164 B.C. This feast of dedication was to commemorate that liberation. Antiochus was born Mithridates in about 202 B.C., He assumed the throne of his Seleucid king father when he murdered his brother in 175 B.C. He was taken as a young boy prisoner by the Romans, and he was held as ransom and to help negotiate a peace treaty. And this messed him up. He loved Greek culture and Greek society, and he determined, first of all, peacefully to persuade the Jews to adopt Greek culture, Greek philosophy, Greek worship. And when it didn't work peacefully, then he forced it on. Basically after suffering a terrible loss in Egypt he turned his sights on Judea and Jerusalem and with 20 soldiers armed to the teeth he marched into Judea and Jerusalem killing by some estimates between 40 and 50,000 Jews in a matter of 3 days. He insisted that the people follow the Greek customs and in worship including the worship of Zeus and so he went into the Temple Mount and then into the Temple precinct and he erected a stat- statue of of Zeus, and during the course of his blasphemous interaction, he went into the Holy of Holies. He took a pig, he slit its throat, and then took the blood and smeared it on the altar and smeared it on the inside of the temple. Defiling the temple. As a matter of fact, not only did he outlaw Jewish customs and Jewish worship, he made it a prime punishable by death to exercise those customs and rituals, and if you owned a copy of the Torah, it was confiscated and you were killed and it was burned. The persecutions of Antiochus Epiphanes were spectacular atrocities. As a matter of fact, the book of Maccabees records a woman who in defiance of Antiochus decided to have her child circumcised. He had the little tiny baby's throat cut. He wrapped the baby around his own mother's neck. He paraded her through the streets of Jerusalem and then took her to the highest wall in the city and pushed her off off the wall. A woman with seven children, determined to follow and obey God's laws, were lined up. From the oldest to the youngest, their tongues were cut out in front of their mother. Then... The wicked Syrian occupiers took hot irons and then patch by patch began to burn every square inch of flesh from the oldest to the youngest, and then they murdered their mother. It's that kinds of atrocities. You can imagine during this feast there was one time, there was one time one time in the history of the Jewish people when a man marched in to the Temple Mount and he proclaimed himself to be God and they weren't good with that and look at verse 23 and Jesus walked in the temple and Solomon's porch Now, Solomon's porch was a series of high columns, about 40 feet high. It's on the east side of the temple, and it overlooked the Kidron. And and people would walk around this magnificent scene, and as you can imagine, the pillars were covered with awnings so that you could escape the cold and the weather. And rabbis would come with their students, and they would debate the hot topics. And in verse 24, it says, Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. It's a good question. Perhaps there's no more important question that a person can ask. Tell us the truth about your identity. Tell us the truth about your mission. Tell us the truth. Who are you and what are you doing here? But you know what the text says doesn't tell us is what motivated them. Because there's two kinds of motivations when you ask that question, who are you, Jesus? Because you want to deny, ignore, and resist, and reject him. And that's exactly what the religious leaders are doing. Uh, There's two kinds of people. Those who seriously and legitimately want to know the truth about Jesus, and then there are those who simply don't. And you know who they are. You talk to them probably this week. Your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, your coworker. There are people who come to you week after week and month after month, and they want to talk God talk with you. They're always talking, but they never come to a knowledge of the truth. Jesus has made claims in many forms, assertions, declarations, pronouncements. Some of those claims sound like challenges and and pretensions. Throughout history, scholars and disciples have looked through the lens of Scripture and repeated the question, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, just say it plainly. Spit it out. Who are you? And the religious leaders literally are unprepared for the answer that he gives because in the passage he makes four claims number 1 that he is the messiah number 2 that he's one with god number 3 that he is the son of god and number 4 that god is in jesus and jesus in god in verses 37 through 39 and so we begin in verse 25 once again the assertion jesus answered them i told you And you didn't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. Some people suggest that Jesus never made messianic claims. They couldn't be more wrong. Here Jesus says, I have told you and you don't believe. The problem is isn't in the ambiguity of the revelation, but rather in the religious leader's persistent spiritual blindness and stubborn unbelief. Most people don't have the honesty of heart to tell you the truth. The reason why they reject Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is because they love their sin. They love it. And they want to hold on to it with all of their might. And you can always come up with another argument. Another reason. Another question. The problem isn't Insufficient revelation or lack of information. It's because they refuse to repent and they refuse to exercise faith. And the religious leaders think carefully for just a moment. They hate the truth. They love lies. They love their sin. And from the perspective of human responsibility, they rejected the truth. And from the perspective of God's sovereignty, the religious leaders don't believe because they're not God's sheep. You'll remember that Jesus told them in John chapter seven, verse six, my doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. Jesus has a personal and an intimate relationship with the Father he's been sent by the Father. Remember in John chapter seven verse twenty nine I know him, I am from him. He has sent me john seven thirty seven If any man thirsts, let him come to me and drink. this he spoke of the Spirit. John 8, 12, I'm the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Over and over and over again, Jesus has told them, he knows God. He's been sent by God. Jesus says, I'm the source of life. Jesus says, I'm the ultimate judge. Jesus says, I'm the one who gives life to human beings. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. Jesus says, I'm the revelation from God. John 8, 19. Jesus says, I have a different origin than other human beings. John 8.23 Jesus says I am from above and you are from below. Jesus says if a person doesn't believe in Jesus that person will die in their sins it says in John chapter 8 verse 23 and 24 the list continues. Jesus claims to be God's spokesperson in John 8.24 that he's the son of man who will be lifted up on a cross in John 8.28 that God never left him alone and that he never sinned. Jesus Jesus never sinned. Jesus never fails to please God, John 8, 29. Jesus says that He's the Savior and the Deliverer from death. Jesus says that if you keep Jesus' word, you will never die john eight fifty one he not to mention before Abraham existed, I am in john eight fifty eight he's the son of God in john nine thirty five he's the door of the sheep, he's the good shepherd in John chapter ten verses eleven and fourteen and then the religious leaders go, oh besides all that, who are you? what do you do what do you do what do you do when you tell a person there are over 300 prophecies relating to the life the the coming of Jesus the life of Jesus the ministry of Jesus the death of Jesus the resurrection of Jesus what do you do what do you do when you present evidence after evidence after evidence Jesus appeals To his own works. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. And for those of you who have been following along in John's Gospel, remember how we defined the word witness. A witness is a person who has a knowledge of the facts. A witness is a person who has a reputation for telling the truth. A witness is a person who's willing to tell the truth. And so Jesus, when he says... The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. What works? You mean turning the water into wine in Cana? Do you mean healing the nobleman's son? Do you mean healing the man at the pool of Bethesda? Do you mean feeding the 5,000? Do you mean walking on the water? Do you mean healing the the man who's born blind? What else have you got? Is it miracles that are going to persuade them? Do you understand what's happening? Jesus reminds the religious leaders there is a reason they don't believe. And you know what that reason is? They don't belong. Look what it says in verse 26. But you do not believe. Because you're not of my sheep. As I said to you, they're goats. They're not sheep. The religious leaders claim to be followers of God. But in their hearts, their lives, their behavior, it was far from God. They weren't really sheep. They weren't really followers of Jesus, they therefore rejected his words, and they therefore rejected his claims. After first service, one person said to me, you know, I don't like to be called a sheep. I'd rather be called a recovering wolf, because it sounds more powerful. Hey, you know what? Look what Jesus says in verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. In verse 28, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. I'm content to be called a sheep if that's what Jesus wants to call me. Yeah, that's, I'm more than happy. My sheep hear my voice and I know them, Jesus says. And they follow me. You'll note that Jesus describes the sheep and how it's different from the goat. And then he says, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. And in verse 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. Jesus gives not simply an apologetic for the claims of Christianity. Jesus doesn't just simply say, okay, just repeat after me. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, the Maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. I believe in His Son, the only begotten, God of God light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made. He doesn't do that. He describes the characteristics of the true believer, the genuine follower, ability and sensitivity to hear the voice of Jesus. That's number one. Number two, obedience to his leading and guiding, recognition of his leadership. That's number two, confidence or assurance in their ultimate destination that they're going to go to heaven and not hell. And number four, that they are in the strong and loving arms of the shepherd. (laughs) Jesus is my father who's given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. When I was reading that, I was thinking back to my own childhood. I have an uncle who's died many, many years ago. He was actually my mother's uncle, my great-uncle, my Uncle Richard. And my Uncle Richard weighed, mm, 400 pounds. He was a big man. He was a big man. And if you take both of your hands and put them together, that's about how big my Uncle Richard's hands were. And he used to love playing this game with me. The game was he would put a quarter in that great big hand of his, And he would close it and he'd go, you know, if you can get me to open my hand, the money is yours. You know, when you're eight or nine years old, you know, you you may try to bend his hands to get that money open a little while. But after about ten minutes, I realized that wasn't going to work. So I tried tickling him. But that didn't work. And then I snuck into my room and I got a ruler and I poked him right in the eye with it. The hand came open and I got the quarter. You know what a lot of people think? They think that God is like my Uncle Richard, that they can poke him in the eye. That they can get God to let go when God is not willing to let go. So you see... For Jesus, he says, you have friendship and relationship with me based on your ability and sensitivity to hear my voice. And not just simply to hear what I'm saying, but to obey the leadership and guiding circumstances that Jesus brings you into. And guess what? If you're not hearing his voice, you've got to reconsider the fact that you may or may not be a sheep. And guess what? Obedience to His leading and guiding means you're willing to hear what He has to say. It doesn't matter what I say. What matters is what Jesus says. If I ask you a question and I say, are you a Christian? Do you really only have one of two answers? Yes, I am. or No, I'm not. And if you're not, I shouldn't have the expectation that you are going to act like a But if you say that you are a Christian, then guess what? In that concession, you're saying, I have the ability and sensitivity to hear the voice of Jesus. I'm willing to follow his leading and guiding. I have confident assurance of my ultimate destination. If I asked you this question, if you knew that you were going to die, would you go to heaven? And if your answer is, I hope so, that's what a goat would say. And the reason why that becomes an important point is because Jesus, again, with the ability and sensitivity to hear his voice, with obedience and leading and guiding, Jesus Offers eternal life and remember eternal life by its very nature must mean life that goes on forever and ever eternal life no matter how you parse the words can't mean temporal life as a matter of fact in John chapter 1 verse 11 remember earlier on it said he came to his own and his own didn't receive him speaking of the religious leaders and the Jewish people And look what it says in verse 30. The declaration is unity with God. In John chapter 10, verse 30, it says, I and my father are one. Now we're in some deep theological water. Because Jesus claims to possess the same essential nature that God possesses. You know what the gospel of John is like? Do you remember when you were a kid? and you were first learning how to swim? Do you remember your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, whoever taught you how to swim? They take you out into the pool, and you get into the pool, and you put your toes in the pool, and then you go up to your waist, and then you go up to your chest, and then you go up to your chin, and then you go to your toes, and you stand on your toes, and then you start hopping on your toes, and pretty soon you're in over your head. The same is true of John's Gospel does this mean? The nature of God. I and my Father are one. The nature of God. This is the substance that makes God, God. Only God possesses that substance. There are two types of being in the universe. The self-existent, self-aware God. And then beings who are created by God. Jesus claims to have the same nature, the same substance, the same essence, the same being, the same power, the same glory. And this is seen in that word, Echad, one. The word is neuter, not masculine. It means thing, not person. Jesus is of the same thing or the same substance as God. Jesus is claiming to be God. My friend Ron Rhodes, who has visited with us, writes, and I quote, Jesus was claiming to be God, but he wasn't claiming to be the Father, as some cultists claim. We know this is true because the phrase, I and the Father are one, a first person plural, we are, the Greek is s men is used. The verse literally reads from the Greek, I and the Father, we are one. If Jesus intended to say that he and the Father were one person, he certainly would not have used the person plural, which clearly implies two persons. It means that and so much more when he says i and my father are one literally in john chapter 17 a little bit later on in john's gospel remember in his high priestly prayer he will pray a prayer he he will pray father may they be one as we are one what does that mean what could that possibly mean you know you don't have to be a theologian and you don't have to be a philosopher to understand John chapter 10, verse 30. Even a child understands what it means to have friendship, fellowship, and love. And remember, as Christians, our lives are marked and motivated by love. The father loves the son, and the son loves the father. And when you're talking to a child, if you say to the child, I love you, even a selfish child will say, good for you. You know, it only makes sense that you would love me. Now you and I have something in common. You love the most important person in the world, and so do I. Yeah, even a child gets that! So, in what way is the Father and the Son one? Look how the Jews interpreted it. Verse 31. The Jews took up stones again to stone him. The religious leaders understood that Jesus is making an unqualified admission to being God. And the Old Testament penalty for blasphemy, that is, the caricature of demeaning God was death by stoning that's Leviticus chapter 24 and by the way this is the fourth time in John's gospel where the religious leaders are attempting to kill Jesus in John chapter 5 verse 16 John chapter 7 verse 1 John chapter 8 verse 59 The Roman occupation had removed the right of the Jews to exercise capital punishment, but this mob was ready to take matters into their own hand. They were willing to kill Jesus. And look in verse 32, Jesus answered and said, Many good works I have shown you from my Father, for which of these works do you stone me? Do you think Jesus is trying to backpedal? Do you think Jesus is trying to retract his earlier statements? If ever there was a time, if ever there was a time in all of human history for Jesus to get it right, it should have been now, hey, look, you've got it all wrong. I'm not saying that I'm God. You've completely misunderstood what I'm saying. But he doesn't say that. He doesn't say that at all. He says, for which of the good works which I've shown you from my Father, which of those are you stoning me? Jesus is trying to get the religious leaders to connect his works and his words. The miracles of Jesus offered visible, tangible, inescapable evidence of his unity with the Father and oneness and purpose. Tell us, Jesus, how did you walk on water? Were there stones underneath? Jesus, how did you feed 5,000 people with just a few loaves and a few fish? Jesus, how did you open eyes, sockets, and create new eyes? later on, of course, John, in John's Gospel in the 11th chapter, the very next chapter, Jesus will bring Lazarus back from the dead. And look in verse 33, the Jews answered him saying, For a good work we don't stone you but for blasphemy because you being a man make yourself God is Jesus a man? yes is Jesus God? yes Jesus is one person with two natures he is totally completely indivisibly and forever God and when he was born of the virgin and appeared on the planet earth he took on a second nature Jesus is completely God. And he is also human. And look what Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 34. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are God's? If he, that is the Lord, called them Elohim, gods, to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I'm the Son of God? Now, does Jesus mean that human beings are gods? Or does Jesus mean that human beings can become gods, as some have suggested? Jesus is a Jew. He is an observant Jew. The religious leaders are Jews. As a matter of fact, the scripture that they would have prayed day and night from the earliest time that they could hear words, they would have prayed the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Lord, Deuteronomy 6, four. Jesus is a Jew. The religious leaders are Jews. They would not have suggested or embraced the philosophical worldview of either pantheism or panentheism. Pantheism is the belief that everything is God or God is all and that only God is real. The pantheists hold the view that human beings are in their core the same essence as God. Panentheism also holds the position that God is all, but that God is in all, that God generates reality, and that human beings are, in effect, a part of God. And so when a person says, I believe, you know, that we're all a part of God and that there's this divine spark inside of you, that's pantheism. That's panentheism. That is not historical, biblical Christianity. We have every reason to believe that Jesus and his audience believe that there's only one self-existent God. Both Jesus and the religious leaders believe that there is one creator who is distinct from the creation. There is one creature in creation and one Lord. Jesus is using what's known in semantics and philosophy as an a fortiori Argument A fortiori means an even stronger argument or an even stronger reason. He said, listen to me, I've told you. That's a pretty good reason to believe that I'm God. The miracles prove that I'm God. That's a very good reason for believing that I'm God. But now he says, listen carefully to what the scriptures have to say about who I am in relationship to what I have revealed. What does the Bible say? He quotes Psalm 82, 6. In Psalm 82, 6, the psalmist Asaph wrote, I said you are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. But in the very next sentence he says, but you're all going to die just like men. In Exodus chapter 22, verse 28, it says, You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. But that's exactly what the religious leaders are doing. They're reviling God. And since the Lord called human judges Elohim, God with a small G, based on their ability to make life and death decisions among human beings, how much more does Jesus have the right to call himself the son of God in view of the fact that he is sanctified and sent by God in view of the miracles and the works of of God? In other words, what Jesus is saying in Psalm 82, verse 6, that human beings are given the prerogative, if you will, or the prerogative of deity, in so much as that rulers and judges had the ability to make life and death decisions over a person. A person could stand before a judge, and that judge could order his execution. And the whole point of Psalm 82, six, is that they were unjust judges and they were unjust rulers. And so, Jesus is basically saying, if human beings could exercise extraordinary authority as representatives of God, then why should it shock you that I'm telling you that I'm the Son of God? In other words, Jesus is not giving a defense for the deification of mere mortals. Jesus is giving a defense that he's God. And so, is Jesus saying, rulers were called gods, why not call me God? I don't think so. Jesus is claiming a unique and a distinct identity separate from all other human beings. He's claiming to be the one God the Father sent and sanctified, the very Son of God. And look what Jesus says in verse 37. If I don't do the works of my Father, don't believe me. If I say something that is inconsistent with the character of God, don't believe me. If I do something that is inconsistent with the character of God, don't believe me. Antiochus Epiphanes declared himself to be God and slaughtered the Jews. Antiochus Epiphany declared himself to be God and he would slit the throats of mothers. He would slit the throats of children. He would massacre. He would torture. He would observe every kind of blasphemy imaginable. And the Jews rightly decided that he was a madman and not God in the flesh. Jesus says, but if I do, though you don't believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him, Do you understand what Jesus is saying? If for whatever reason you're not able to comprehend the words that I'm saying, then believe what I'm doing. I've opened blind eyes. I've opened deaf ears. I've caused the lame to walk. I have fed the poor and given hope to the hopeless. How can you just simply ignore that? The Bible points out that the Father and the Son are eternal in Romans 16.26 and in Revelation one seventeen. The Bible points out that the Father and the Son are both the creator of all things. Psalm 100 verse 3 in Colossians 1.16. The Father and the Son are both omnipresent. That means capable of being everywhere at once. Both the Father and the Son are omniscient. That means they both know all things according to 1 John chapter 3 verse 20 and John chapter 21 verse 17. Both the Father and the Son are called the First and the Last. Both the Father and the Son are called Lord of Lords. Both the Father and the Son are called Unchanging and Eternal. Both Father and Son are called Judge. Both Father and Son are called Savior. Both Father and Son are called Redeemer. Both Father and Son are called the One who answers prayers. Both Father and Son are Worshipped by Angels. Jesus forgives sin in Mark chapter 2 verse 5. Jesus accepts worship as God in Matthew chapter 14, verse 33. And since both Father and Son will and act supernaturally, since both give life, and since both strengthen the believer, how can we believe anything other than what the Bible says about it? So in what way is the Father in the Son and in what way is the Son in the Father? This is a reference to the indwelling presence of each in the other. They are one mind, one essence, one spirit, one nature, one purpose, one work. In Colossians chapter 2 verse 9 it says, For in him that is in Jesus dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Do you know what Jesus is doing? He's pleading with the religious leaders. He's pleading with the religious leaders to believe the truth you believe that the works of Jesus prove the indwelling presence of God in him he is pleading with the religious leaders to believe their own scripture but they don't they don't believe they reject this claim and look what it says in verse 40. And he went away beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at first, and there he stayed. Then many came to him and said, John performed no sign, but all the things that John spoke about this man were true. Jesus returns to the Jordan. This is the place where he was baptized by John the Baptist. He returns to the Jordan to the place where he was baptized, to the place where the sky opened up and a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son. Hear Him. For those who believe that the Father is the Son, is this some sort of celestial ventriloquism? Does he go, okay, watch this. I can throw my voice all the way to heaven. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And you don't even see Jesus' lips move. No. The Father is not the Son. And the Son is not the Father. But the Father is God, and the Son is God, and there aren't two gods. There's only one God. And when it says... That they came to him and said, John performed no sign. It means John the Baptist. John didn't perform any kind of miraculous sign whatsoever. But everything that John said about Jesus came true. By the way, when I read this, you know what it reminded me? That sometimes it pays to return to the place where you first heard from God. You know, I've been a Christian since 1973. And in that time, sometimes there are difficulties and and pain and confusion and a type of disorientation, and you wonder, God, are you still there? Are you really there? Do you really love me? Do you really care? Can I hear your voice? Can I follow you and submit to you, to your leadership and your guidance? And every once in a while, when I would find myself disoriented. I would go back to the place where I first heard from God, at Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa. I would go to the parking lot where the tent used to stand, and I would go into the tent. And I would remember when I heard the gospel. And I I would remember how I experienced life and love and friendship and fellowship in the Lord Jesus Christ. I would go back and remember God's voice and remember God's promise. And remember that God had a plan and a purpose for my future. The response of the religious leaders, tell us something about their identity. They're GOATS. But look at the end of verse 42. And many believed in him there. There was a group of people who came to him and listened to him and understood him and believed him. There was a doctrinal test, right belief, but there was a discipleship test, right behavior. You know what? You might be a sheep. If you're sensitive to his voice, if God is speaking to you through his word, through the Savior, through your conscience, through other people, are you listening to what God is saying to you? Remember that God spoke to Balaam even through a donkey. And if God can use a donkey to speak to a man, is it possible that God could speak to you? Through someone equally stubborn, equally obstinate, a strong-willed child, a mule-headed boss, a pig-headed co-worker, a perverse politician, a wrong-headed family member, an uncooperative economy? Are you listening to the voice of the Savior? is He asking you to love Him and believe Him and respond to Him and walk with Him and receive hope and forgiveness in Him. And remember what Jesus said. That when you know Him and love Him and walk with Him, that nothing can pry apart the good shepherd's Invincible hands, if there you are snuggled up next to him in his bosom, not even Satan himself can pry apart the hands of God. Let's stand and let's pray for just a second before I dismiss you, Heavenly Father. you pray for that person who is living in a life of darkness and destitution and guilt Lord I pray for that person who so much wants to hear your voice Lord I pray that that's exactly what they would do they would hear the voice Of God, they would hear the message of hope, that they would hear the invitation of Jesus, and that they would hear and understand that there is hope and mercy and grace and forgiveness and life in Jesus. And that's what they want. They've run out of excuses. They may still have plenty of questions. I know I did. But they've run out of excuses. The emptiness, the darkness, the guilt, the uncertainty about the future. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would speak to that person. The person who wants to know that they can know Jesus, that they can love Jesus and be with Jesus and be forgiven by Jesus and have eternal life in Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would extend the invitation that you would be their shepherd and they would be your sheep. Lord, even as we sang in worship, I'm alive, I'm alive, I'm alive. What a mocking song to the person who's dead, dead, dead in trespasses and sins. Lord, I pray that you would make them alive, alive. if that's you and you need to have a right relationship with God and you don't, just slip up your hand and I'll pray for you. It's that simple. No more excuses. You want a life of love. Is that you? You can have it. Just pray that simple prayer. Lord. I want to turn from my sin, and I want to turn to You. I want to hear Your voice. I want to follow You in obedience. I want to experience that assurance that comes from knowing that my eternal circumstances are secure. Lord, I pray for them. And if you prayed that prayer, I'm going to be up here right after the service, after we dismiss you. I'd be more than happy to talk with you just a little bit more. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing.